welcome to the Nutcast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Bitty Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 76th episode of the Nutcast entitled Fool's Gold, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Sansa 1 in which King Joffrey Baratheon celebrates his birthday, um... Well, he's not a Baratheon. He's a uh, he's a Lannister, but he's also not the true king. But it, it is his name day, his birthday though. And Sansa Stark got him a present. Defiance. Gotta love Sansa. Such a generous girl. But it's it's obviously great to get the Sansa Stark. She had a a big traumatic break at the end of the last book, as did multiple characters. To be <laughs> fair, so it's like it's almost like coming on to a whole new character arc once we get to Clash of Kings. Obviously, there are connections to the person we met in Game of Thrones, but in a lot of ways, this feels totally new. So it's exciting, no matter if you like Sansa Stark, don't like Sansa Stark, used to not like Sansa Stark, but have seen the light like nobody present. <laughs> I don't know who you're referring to, and I won't respond to that any further. It's the only thing you've been wrong about, Jeff. That's why we harp on it. Otherwise, otherwise, we'd have nothing to critique you for. Oh, good. I'm glad you agree about Barristan turn cloaking now. Good to, good to have that out of the way. Honestly, you've, be- you've begun convincing me on that, but that's a topic for an, an entirely other oh, time. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> There's a Patreon episode in the making. <laughs> right, right. That would be quite the Patreon episode. Wow. <laughs> Go back to back to back to ground zero for a Patreon episode. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warren of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the gym that was promised, the high-bearded priest, the blue-ringed octoling, Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyrian, Hedrical, captain of the airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Frank, Lord James Stormborn, War of the Wi- <laughs> Warden of the World Wide Werewood, God damn it, Lord James Stormborn, and that great name that just ties my tongue all up in knots, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, and our two newest members of the Small Council. Yes, you heard that right. Again, we have two new members of the Small Council. Lawrence, the Prince of Dorne, and Richard, the Sea Lord of Bravos. Welcome, gentlemen, to the Small Council, and thank you very much for your support. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Uh, Dorne and Bravos. Gotta love having those two at our back. Those are two of the more politically admirable and relatable areas of the world of Ice and Fire, I would argue. So, nothing better than to have them join our council. It is good that we have those two kingdoms with us. Well, Dorne isn't. Well, Bravos is in a kingdom. Bravos is a city state, but we need that kind of mercantile trading city that we to go along with us to kind of feed our coffers, so that we can, you know, totally use that money in a responsible manner. Unlike Lord Littlefinger, <laughs> and to have Prince and to have Dorne there too to provide us the lemons, like Danny's lemon. Never mind. I'm just gonna go. Well, I'm gonna, we're gonna move on. We're moving on. Our spoiler warning is talked about in all episodes. We'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan and Cavellas, histories, interviews, the Windswinter chapters as well as game of thrones a tv show anything and everything our question this week comes from sir darren s a sworn sword and he asks hiya guys how do you think ned's death chapter from either his sansa's or cersei's pov would have changed his death i think one of the most interesting things is when multiple povs are in the same location and how george chooses whichever one for that moment in time Tyrion slash sansa bran slash john sam slash john etc Give me that American bread opinion. <laughs> well, in terms of American bread opinion, that's, that's, that's always more Jeff's territory than mine. That's a very interesting question. I think in terms of Ned's death from his POV, that's what we got in the show. That's what we got in, in season one, episode nine, Baylor. 
was uh, the execution of Ned Stark from from his point of view as like the sound went out and you know he looked to see that Arya was safe and then the sword came down. That was very much directed from his POV rather than Arya's. Uh, Sansa would be a different case and Cersei I never even considered before obviously because she's not a POV until much later in the series but that would be fascinating too given what she wants to happen and how it doesn't what do you think about that sir so there's actually one other person that could be a potential point of view for Ned's death and that's Sir Barristan Selmy who was out in the audience when Ned Stark was executed he was out on the steps right, of Baylor I forgot that Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy. Like you remember these like little touches in like the story as it starts to filter out. Uh, so like we do get a little bit of Cersei's and Barrison's point of views of Ned's death. Cersei's point of view would probably be like, oh, my God, what the fuck are you doing? We had this all planned out. I did everything for you, my sweet, poor baby son who I love dearly. And you did nothing wrong, my child. You did nothing wrong. But, you know, when she goes back, she thinks about how Littlefinger and Vars have worked out the terms. Everything was all worked out. But then suddenly, you know, Joffrey had ordered Ned's execution which was just like totally odd and strange, right? Which again feeds a theory we talked about, I don't know, even know how many episodes back now about how Littlefinger was likely the one to counsel Joffrey to execute Ned Stark. So I, I think her point of view would be just terror and the realization that now she was in danger and now there was no chance of forestalling the war that was coming to Westeros in the form of the Starks and the Rivermen and the Tullys all joining up together. Barristan's point of view I think would be interesting. I think like Barristan looks at Ned Stark as kind of a near peer, at least in terms of like their lifestyle and their aging. So I do wonder whether Barristan, as he often does in his dance chapters, would like see reflections of himself in Ned Stark and wonder if that's if the sword is coming for him next and that sort of thing. I think that would probably be what Barristan's point of view is. And he'd be like, well, just look, look at this. Look at how terrible the world is. Another good man falling down and dying. And here I stood, saw and did nothing. Yet again, I just I just can't stop doing that, man. Like, why, why do I do that all the time? I, I should be better than what I am right now. So I, I think that would be Barrison's point of view. But I don't know. I'm, I'm willing to take suggestions from you as to what you think Barrison or Cersei would do in that circumstance. No, I think that's a great point that Barrison would both. He would see Ned's execution as a further proof that the society he believed in is collapsing, but it would also make him feel more ashamed about his failure to do anything about it. Because you're right, Ned and Barristan both look at each other as like the last honest man. And right. they're the only ones who get along with each other. They're the only ones who stick up for Danny when Robert proposes that she be assassinated. So Barristan's POV would be interesting. Cersei's POV would be very interesting just because... There's obviously a huge contradiction in terms of how she deals with Joffrey, treating him as, as her great, perfect, beloved son, but also staring down the barrel of all the terrible things he does. And we don't really deal with that contradiction from her POV because by the time she's a POV, Joffrey's dead. Right. So if she had been a POV earlier and we got to see her forced to deal with the fact that, that Joffrey is not only monstrous but really dumb, <laughs> I think – that, that could be interesting because, as we'll get into a long time down the road in A Feast for Crows, I think one of the primary pleasures of reading Cersei chapters is all the little rationalizations she makes and all the little lies she tells herself and how obvious it is when she's overlooking things. That's a lot of fun, and I think this could have been a great example of that. Yeah, it could have been, but, you know, I, I'm so glad we got it from Arya's point of view. I think that was an effective way that George told the story. And, and you do kind of wonder whether maybe at some point George was doing some experimenting with whether it could have come from Sansa's point of view, because that was the only other point of view he had at the time when he was writing a Game of Thrones. That's something that George has done in the past where he's experimented with different point of view characters, especially in A Dance of Dragons, where he was swapping Barristan and Quentin's chapters at some points and kind of doing some Tyrion-Barristan swapping too. Barristan basically was the guy who was, he was 
because Judge George was swapping in a lot for those dance chapters. So it's always possible that we could have seen that event from Sansa's point of view and that maybe there's a super early draft of Ned Stark's execution coming from Sansa's story. But I'm, I'm glad we got it from Arya's point of view. But I do think it's always interesting. As it, it's always an interesting AU to consider it from someone else's point of view in the story. Absolutely. As Sir Darren said, there are multiple examples like that in the books where you have like the showdown at Queen's Crown from both Bran's POV and John's POV, where you have this literally the same event in uh, the beginning of A Feast for Crows and the beginning of A Dance with Dragons told through Sam's eyes and then again through John's eyes. And obviously that one is basically a product of the writing process, kind of breaking down <laughs> for those two books. But it is still really interesting to look at those and it gives you a, a real sense of the limitations of each POV, like what is slightly outside their purview. And that's right. something that uh, I think George generally does a good job with, is not only playing with information, but the lack of information to increase and heightened tension, especially with Sansa Stark, as, as we'll get into as we go. So thank you, Sir Darren S., for the question. If you uh, want to ask us a question, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. $10 a month and above patrons get the chance to ask us questions on the podcast. And we always love it. There's always like surprising questions or angles on the chapter we haven't thought of before. And it really enhances not only the listener experience, we hope, but also our experience. So thank you to everyone who sent a question and keep them coming. Keep them coming, guys. We love them. Love the questions. It's always a great way to start the episodes, having you guys' input very early on. And we also wanted to announce briefly for you guys who are our $5 and above patrons, so just $5 a month or more, you do get a special bonus patron-only episode. And the next patron-only episode coming your guys' way is all about... Fever Dream, a broad overview of the story that we are going to be picking up a chapter-by-chapter podcast starting next month on. So we figured before we would actually get into the chapters themselves that we would give kind of some overview stuff, a little bit of background on the story and how George wrote it, talk about some of our expectations and some of the things that we like in the story so far as we're reading it. As we were talking about our our patron-only episode for our two highest tiers just before we came on here, we do have uh, about two-thirds of the way through this reread. I think Emma's a little bit behind that, but we are finding a lot of great, wonderful things that are going on in the book there, especially some parallels with The Song of Ice and Fire. Absolutely. And there's some really interesting links, but there's also some really interesting differences because Fever Dream is working in really an entirely different genre or a couple different genres, really. It's got the, the vampire horror elements, but also the, the, the southern antebellum setting. And putting those together, I think, creates a really interesting... It's basically two kinds of gothic. You know, the vampire gothic and the southern gothic brought together. And, and it works really well. So talking about that tone, talking about those themes and all the really interesting characters, it's, that's that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, man. I'm so looking forward to that. So that will be coming to your guys' way for our small council patrons starting on Monday the 26th. So if you guys are listening to this on the release date, that'll be out for our small council patrons that day. The 27th for our High Lords and Ladies patron tier. The 28th for our Sworn Sword patrons. And the 29th for all of our poor fellow. That is our $5 a month. That is our $5 a month or above patrons on the 29th of August. So we're looking forward to doing that. And so if you guys have never read Fever Dream or are interested in it. So if you never read that or are interested in listening to more of our bonus episodes, I think we have 18 bonus episodes at this point in time. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. But this episode is not about Patreon. It's not about Fever Dream. It's about... Sansa Stark? Did, did I read that correctly? Sansa, Sansa, Sansa Stark? Sal- Salsa Stork? I can't make out what you wrote here. Uh, oh, oh, yes, yes. It's oh, Lady a, Lannister. I remember her. Ah, uh, yes. Lady Lannister. Knee Stark. Yes. Good stuff. So, here is the synopsis for A Clash of Kings. Love saying that we're in A Clash of Kings still. Here is the synopsis for A Clash of Kings. Sansa 1. It's Joffrey's name day and the world is bright and windy. Sansa watches the comet overhead from her window tower and asks the Sir Knight Sir Aerys, the good Reachman Oakheart, what he thinks the comet is all about. 
Why it's definitely a 1000%, 1 billion percent Joffrey's Comet. It represents his glory. The gods themselves have blessed Joffrey with a symbol in the sky. He says very, very loudly. When Sansa challenges that the servants call it the dragon's tail, Eris again very, very loudly states that of course the servants call it that. Aegon the Conqueror once sat in the chair that Joffrey sits in. And Joffrey will triumph over his enemies just like Aegon does. He practically shouts. Man, Ares, why are you shouting so much? Hmm, I wonder. Is it true? Sansa wondered. Would the gods be so cruel? Catelyn was one of Joffrey's enemies now. So was Rob. Are they going to die next? Oh uh, boy. Joffrey closes the window to the tower and Eris, stupid Rommel Oakheart says that she looks lovely today. Sansa thanks Eris, but she knows she's going to have to attend the tourney in Joffrey's honor. So she's taken special care for her appearance and clothes, and she's wearing long sleeves to cover up the bruises that Sir Boros Blount had left her after Joffrey found out that Rob Stark had been proclaimed King of the North. Fuck you, Joffrey. Hate you. Hope you die soon. And you will. Simple Himmler, Ares Oakheart offers Sansa his arm and they head on out to the tourney grounds. All things being even, Sansa prefers Ares to the other Kingsguard knights. He was courteous, and yes, while he did hit her, he protests, he protests so loudly, Joffrey's orders, and doesn't hit her hard. Wow, what a fucking guy that Ares Oakheart is. God. Regardless, Sansa was not quite so fortunate with the other Kingsguard knights. Those alleged white cloaks obeyed Joffrey without question. As Sansa and Ares walk out to the gate, I say Ares, is it Ares or Ares? I don't care. As Sansa and Ares walk out to the tourney grounds, Sansa asks who will win, and Ares says that he will win, but he's not precisely thrilled about the potential victory. It's going to be a small field of mostly squires and free riders for the tourney. Sansa thinks back to the tourney of the hand and how every last champion of the realm had attempted. She thinks back to the magic of the moment and all the colors of the rainbow that had been present. But now Robert and Ned were dead, and there were three kings of the realm, and war was afoot. Sansa asks if Cersei were present, and Ares says, no, she won't be there. Too busy misrolling King's Landing. Then Ares drops some gossip about how Cersei is furious at Big Daddy Tywin going to ground at Harrenhal instead of coming to King's Landing's defense. Sansa, though, isn't so concerned with this military development. She's worried that without Cersei present, Joffrey will be unrestrained. They reach the gallery that the carpenters erected for the tourney, and Sansa notices that the crowd is mostly Lannister dudes and a paltry few that remain, such as Giles Rosby, Lady Tanda, Lady Felice, Jalabarzo, and a lady baby Ermasand, who was going to get married off to a Lannister cousin. Joffrey himself is up under the crimson canopy with his leg hanging over the chair like a brat who needs to be sent to his room with Frank. Marcella and Tommen sit behind him, and Sandra Clegane stands above them with his white cloak draped over his broad shoulders. Broad shoulders, huh, Sansa? He announces Sansa when she shows up with a voice rough as the sound of saw and wood. Now, those are some good-ass words, George. Gotta love George's way of writing that. Marcella nods shyly at Sansa, and Tommen excitedly tells Sansa that he's going to ride in the tourney today. Sansa talks up Tommen's prowess, but then Joffrey is there, wearing a bunch of armor like a moron, stating that Tommen is going to ride in a tournament against straw opponents. Sansa curtsies to Joffrey, and Ares excuses himself. I'm pleased you wore my stones. So the king had decided to play the gallant today. Sansa was relieved. Well, for the moment, I guess. Sansa thanks Joffrey for the stones and says she's praying Joffrey has a lucky name day. Joffrey then reports that Viserys is dead, laughing about how he got killed by having molten gold poured on him like a fucking psychopath. Hmm, wonder how that little piece of information reached King's Landing. Hmm, any suspects we could have in mind? Don't know. Jorah <clears throat> moment. Also, Joffrey intends to challenge Rob Stark to single combat, which, <laughs> if only that would have happened. I know the pitch litter's dead by this point, but if only. I should like to see that, your grace, more than you know, Sansa thinks. 
Joffrey tries to puzzle out whether Sansa is mocking him or not, which leads Sansa to quickly change the subject and ask whether Joff is writing the list today. He's not, of course, because he's so very fucking brave. Mama's boy that he is, he listened to Cersei about how it wasn't fitting to ride in the tourney. But he so totally would have been the champion had he ridden, right, Sander? The hound's mouth twitched. Against this lot, why not? When Sansa then asks whether Sander will joust, he tells her, nah, this is attorney of knots. Knots. <laughs> this is attorney of knots. Joffrey hoots and hollers like some goddamn Alabaman when Aki Breaky Heart comes rumbling on over the over the dance hall loudspeakers and then says maybe they should make the champion fight the hound to the death. You'd be one knight the poor. The hound had never taken a knight's vows. His brother was a knight, and he hated his brother. Finally, the trumpets blare and we're on to the tourney of gnats. First in the shoot is Sir Marin Trent, who rides against Sir Hobber Redwine. Marin trounces Hobber in the second tilt. Poorly written, Joffrey declares. Next, Sir Balin Swan comes up decked out in swans. His face He faces off against Moros Slint, Janoslin's son. Sansa hopes that Moros gets his ass killed in the, tur- in the tilt, and she is very nearly and she very nearly gets her wish as Sir Balin Swan thwacks Moros and pushes him off his horse. Moros' head thuds off the ground and his foot catches in the stirrup of the horse, dragging him on the ground for a bit. But when his people get to him, he's still alive. Next, Horace Redwine takes out an elderly knight who may be of some relation to House Connington, maybe? Question mark? Exclamation point? What? I didn't know the Connington's were in A Clash of Kings. Actually, I do know that because they're in Renly's chapters, the one guy who's the cousin to, to whatever. Oh, and this character also never shows up again because, of course, this character would never show up again until maybe the Wind's Win or something. Who knows? Finally, Sir Lothar Brune, in service to Lord Littlefinger, hint, hint, of course, shows up to face Sir Dantos Holler, but Dantos doesn't appear. Well, he doesn't. He does eventually, chasing after his horse in the nude, with everyone shouting insult him, insults at him and laughing at him. Everyone but Joffrey. Joffrey had a look in his eyes that Sansa remembered well. The same look he'd had at the great Septa Baylor the day he pronounced death on Lord Eddard Stark. Duchess declares that he's the loser and loudly asks for wine. So Joffrey proceeds to order a cask from the cellars to drown Dantus in it. Sansa heard herself gasp. No, you can't. The air kind of goes out of the room. Well, not a room. It's not a room. It's out in the open. I'm trying to say it becomes very tense in this setting. Joffrey is stunned that Sansa spoke out. Sansa herself is a bit taken aback at how courageous she is when Joffrey asks very politely and without any hint of malice, no hint whatsoever, whether she said that he can't. Sansa says it's it's bad luck to kill someone on your name day. Joffrey doesn't believe her and then again very politely and without, again, any hint of malice, says that he should drown Sansa alongside Dantos for lying. God, what a fucking psychopath. But then something curious happens. Sandra Clegane backs Sansa's stories. The girl speaks truly, the hound rasped. What a man sows on his name day, he reaps throughout the year. Sansa notes that Sandra speaks flatly and doesn't seem to give a shit about Dantos' fate, which leads to her to think that maybe it's true or something. Uh-huh. All the same, Joffrey says he'll kill the fool tomorrow, which leads to a stroke of merciful intelligence on Sansa's part. And this is really good. He is a fool. You're so clever to see it, Joffrey. He's better fitted to be a fool than a knight, isn't he? You ought to dress him in motley and make him clown for you. He doesn't deserve the mercy of a quick death. And then Joffrey incredibly agrees, having been utterly outwitted by Sansa Stark. Suck it, Joff. Dantos thanks Sansa and Joffrey as Lannister guardsmen drag him away. The Master Riffles then appears, asking if they should summon a new challenger for Sir Lothar Brune, but Joffrey is done with this tourney of gnats. The Master bows, but then Tommen jumps up and roars that he's supposed to ride against the straw man. Joffrey and him bicker back and forth for a bit, with Bersella joining on Tommen's side, and finally Joffrey agrees, annoyed, to allow Tommen to joust. 
Talman mounts his pony and rides against a warrior stuffed with straw who, of course, of course, has his helmet fastened with large antlers just like Big Bobby B. Robert Baratheon. He rides his pony hard as the people in the stands cheer the boy, but then as Talman's sword strikes the straw man's shield, the mace spins around and thwacks Talman on the back of his head, knocking the poor boy from his pony. People laugh at the poor kid, and Joffrey begins hyena laughing at his brother like a fucking dick. And it's a sad scene. Sad. Very sad. Marcella rushes the boy's side, and Sansa urges Joffrey to go out and see if Tommen is hurt. Joffrey, gentle sir that he is, says no fucking way. But then Sanders sees that Tommen is getting up to try again. <sighs> if only Tommen were the elder instead of Joffrey, Sansa thought. I wouldn't mind marrying Tommen. But then a noise disturbs things. Chains come up to everyone's surprise, and a column of DMX Rough Riders come pouring through the gates. It's none other than Tyrion fucking Lannister, Bronn and his merry band of Vale clansmen coming in to save the day. Tommen rides up to meet his, un his uncle, and one of the clansmen scoops the boy out of his saddle and deposits him in front of Tyrion, who then backslaps and overjoyed in laughing Tommen. It's a lovely scene, great kind of chaser to that sad scene before. Marcella runs up too, and Tyrion spins her round in the air. The dwarf makes his way to Joffrey, bends the knee. Your grace. You, Joffrey said. Me, the imp agreed. Although a more courteous greeting might be an order for an uncle and an elder. Sanders says that they thought that Tyrion was dead, but Tyrion ain't about talking to the hound. He's speaking to Joffrey. Marcella says she's glad Tyrion isn't dead, and Tyrion is glad he's also not dead. He turns to Sansa. My lady, I am sorry for your losses. Truly, the gods are cruel. Sansa is utterly unsure of about how to respond, so she says nothing smartly. Tyrion then says he's sorry for Joffrey's loss, and Joffrey kind of scratches his head and is not really sure what loss he's experienced recently. Tyrion says, uh, your fucking father, man, you remember him? Sansa then apologizes for Catelyn's completely justified action in taking Tyrion prisoner, and Tyrion says that a lot of people are sorry for that. And before I am done, some may be a deal sorrier. Tyrion asks where Cersei is, and Joffrey gets all huffy and says that she's with the small council, and how his uncle, in quotation marks, Jaime keeps losing battles. He glares at Sansa like she's to blame, and he states that Robb Stark has crowned himself. Joffrey then asks what gifts Tyrion brought for his name day, and Tyrion says, Me. I'm the gift. Oh wait, shit, that's from season 5. He actually says, I brought my wits. Well, Joffrey wanted Robb Stark's head for a gift, which, lovely as always, Joffrey, you're a fucking psychopath, and then he orders Tom and Marcella to come with him. Sander warns Tyrion that he may lose his tongue if he keeps on keeping on, and then Sansa notices that Tyrion's arm is injured and asks after it. Tyrion gives a quick after-action of what occurred on the Green Fork, with him escaping a Northman by falling off his horse, but as Tyrion watches her, Sansa sees that he softens, weirdly, softens around her. Is it grief for your lord father that makes you so sad? My father was a traitor, Sansa said at once, and my brother and my lady mother are traitors too. That reflects she had learned quickly. I am loyal to my beloved Joffrey. No doubt, as loyal as a deer surrounded by wolves, Tyrion replies. Lions, Sansa whispers. Sansa says this without thinking, but hopes she wasn't heard, but Tyrion heard. He says that he's only a little lion and he promises he won't savage her. But for now, he's off to see Cersei and the small council. Sansa watches him departing and thinks that he seems more gentle than Joffrey, but Cersei, well, she seemed that way too at first. Tyrion was a Lannister and he wasn't her friend. Good thinking, Sansa. She once trusted and loved Joffrey, but what had that gotten her? They had repaid that love and trust with her father's head. Sansa would never make that mistake again. 
and that is A Clash of Kings Sansa 1. You know, there, there's a lot going on in this chapter, of course, but I think it really works to effectively set up Sansa's arc for Clash, introducing us to the major player, showing us the simmering tensions and her status and her relationships to those close to Joffrey, and then bringing Tyrion Lannister on stage at the end, which is great, because next week's going to be that Tyrion chapter. But I figure I would ask you, Evan, in addition to, what are your thoughts about this chapter? What's your take on Sansa Stark and all of A Clash of Kings? In fact, in all of human history, if you can go. <laughs> in all of human history. Yes, sir. <laughs> You know, I think Sansa's chapters in The Clash of Kings are both stronger and weaker than her chapters in A Game of Thrones. As we talked about with our friend McCall when we were covering Sansa's last chapter in Book 1, that story is built flawlessly to its ending, which really just lays out what George was going for all along. And we don't get such a clean structure here. At the end of A Clash of Kings, Sansa is still stuck in King's Landing. She's still functionally at the mercy of the Lannisters, even though the patrol with Joffrey is broken. And while I really love her character development in this book, as we'll talk about in a bit, it's still very much a slow burn in terms of how different she is by the end of the book compared to where she is at the start. This is, I think, a product of the overstuffed writing process we've talked about before with books two and three, when, which George was writing much more and much quicker than he anticipated he would, kind of the opposite of the problem he has now. <laughs> and A Clash of Kings expanded the series overall, and I think in a rewarding fashion, but it did leave threads dangling in the process. As I've said before, Clash often feels like the first half to one big book, with A Storm of Swords as the second half where a lot of stuff pays off. That being said, if you zoom in on that big picture, and if you look at the actual content of Sansa's chapters in this book as they go along, you'll find just so many powerful scenes and memorable bits of imagery and really crucial themes, even more so, I would say, than in her Game of Thrones chapters. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true. I think... I think I, I there's a lot of great stuff in a Game of Thrones in Sansa's chapters. I think the turning of the hand is fabulous and wonderful. I think Sansa's final chapter is really kind of triumphant and kind of makes kind of gives a, a sense of hope at the end of all of the sadness that's been welling up in Sansa's story going up to that point. But I think like here we're getting a, a lot of great scenes in Sansa Stark. I mean, I think like this chapter has some like really kind of fascinating kind of Sansa's like processing of, of grief and Sansa's also processing of who Joffrey actually is and we're also seeing like Sansa starting to wise up to people not being like immediately like giving them their full trust like a character like Tyrion Lannister which is interesting because you know for us we're very sympathetic to Tyrion right as as readers we've been in Tyrion's head we know his point of view but now we have Tyrion interacting with another sympathetic point of view character in Sansa Stark and Sansa's looking at Tyrion the way she really should be looking at him as uh as an enemy, essentially more than anything else. And, you know, that part of that enemy ship is though based on Sansa Stark and her, her role in the story of Clash of Kings. You know, looking in her point of view, I see a lot of more of George giving a point of view to another part of, of history of, of kind of like fantasy storytelling, but also history that isn't typically explored. And that's the point of view of the hostage. So I figured like I would take like a very brief moment here before we get into this chapter itself to talk about Sansa Stark in the context of the historical and Song of Ice and Fire conceptions of the quote hostage. You know, in, in both settings, hostages were used as a means of attaining the good behavior of various figures in the story or in ascertaining ransoms, especially in later years, it became ransoms became the primary reason in Western Europe that hostages were taken. Theon Greyjoy, Richard the Lionheart, the Redwine Twins, the famous Sir Stephen Langton were all hostages in their own time. You know, and, and there was a lot of those hostages were mostly male figures, right? Uh, Richard the Lionheart was taken as a hostage for a ransom. The Redwine Twins are taken hostage for uh, Paxton Redwine's good behavior. Sir Stephen Langton was taken as a hostage as a child against his father's good behavior. You know, but 
those were all male figures, right? In the historical setting, though, were women taken as hostage. And yes, that actually did happen. The use of women as hostages came as a rather late development in medieval history, kind of like the 11th and 12th centuries, more towards the 12th centuries. And and I did do my research for this one. I promise I did. So I found a smart person, smarter than me anyways, Dr. C. Dale Britton, who wrote about this subject. And she said... During the Middle Ages, hostages were almost always male, but starting in the 11th century, girls and women started appearing as hostages. Here, Stockholm Center really was an issue for young women might end up marrying someone at the court where they were hostage. Or, like the boys, they could be put to death rather nastily if the negotiations that had brought them there totally broke down. So I think it's interesting, right? That idea of a female hostage having, quote, Stockholm Syndrome and occasionally marrying members of the court where they were held hostage, it works really well with Sansa's story with the caveat that from accounts I've read, historical hostages were not, like, beaten the shit out of and not treated as shittily as Sansa Stark is. Although, of course, like like uh, Dr. Dr. Britton mentions, they could be nastily executed if, if, if negotiations broke down. But I think, like, Sansa is kind of like, it's kind of like turning it up to 11, like the the... The treatment that she experiences in King's Landing, you know, I kind of read up through Sansa 3 prior to coming out to this episode here where she is paraded in front of the court and stripped naked and beaten by Joffrey's Kingsguard. And fuck all those guys. I hate them all. And I think they should all die. And most of them, if not all of them, will or already have died in the story. So but, but the reason is but the question is, like, why is Sansa treated so badly? And I think, like, this comes back to the idea of what Sansa's value is to the hostage takers, in this case, being House Lannister and to Cersei and Joffrey, you know. It's not really especially high at the moment in King's Landing for Sansa because it's not stopping Rob Stark from kicking the shit out of Tywin Lannister and his cronies in the Riverlands. And it's also not helping to, like, well, the Rivermen from, like, taking the taking the side of everyone else. It's not preventing Renly from marching on King's Landing or Stannis from sailing on King's Landing. It's really having no actual tangible impact on the politics of the realm. And, you know, Tywin is later going to see past, like, the immediate tangible aspects and will place value in Sansa by betrothing and marrying her. Well, betrothing is a way of putting it. Marrying her directly to Tyrion without any any pretense or, or warning. You know, the current crop of, King, of Lannisters at King's Landing are too short-sighted and only see Sansa as, well... I guess we got to keep our word, right? And marry Joffrey. Her. God damn it. Why do we got to marry her to job? Uh, whatever. But the only person that actually is in, in the story so far who is seeing value in Sansa is Lord Creepyfinger, who has already put himself forward to Sansa's, to Cersei for Sansa's hand of marriage, as we find out in A Dance of Dragons. You know, because him being the fucking worst, he's not unintelligent. You know, it's, it's really... It's really special in a really bad way how the Lannisters and King's Landing are just fucking everything up and they are only rescued by the skin of their teeth by Tyrion arriving on the scene and surviving the Battle of the Green Fork and, of course, rescued as well by Tywin Lannister and the Tyrells showing up at the end of A Clash of Kings to rescue them from Sannis' justice. But that being said, though, I think it's interesting to consider Sansa as a hostage character and as sort of like Bran Stark and like keeping the camera on him as Rob Stark rides away at the end of a, at the middle late portion of a Game of Thrones, having Bran Stark, the camera staying on him as so as to just simply being on Tyrion Lannister for all of the King's Landing chapters. You know, I think it's fascinating and really, really good that we have Sansa and Tyrion there. I think it's really important that George has decided to have a female point of view for the chapters in King's Landing and what it's like to be a woman in a besieged city, to be a woman who's a hostage, to be a woman surrounded by hostility. I think the the only limit Joffrey seems to take seriously is that if he kills Sansa, Jaime will be killed. 
He, right. he knows he has to hold back from that. Cersei has informed him of that. Other than that, he doesn't hold back at all. And I think it's in part, as you said, because Sansa's value has dropped. But it's also because George, as you also say, is turning it up to 11. I think he's doing that not just out of a exploitative instinct, but as part of a critique he's making of the hostage-taking system as a whole. That while he certainly understands the nominal logic behind it, He's pointing out that it doesn't really work once you break it down to the human level. And we're going to see a lot of that when we get to Theon's chapters. Because Theon's like whole psychology is a portrait of why hostage-taking doesn't necessarily work out the way you hope it's going to do. So I think that's that's what uh, George is going for in, in terms of the violence there. But to uh, zoom into this chapter specifically, <laughs> instead of just talking about Sansa's Clash storyline as a whole, we start, of course, as we start all the Clash of Kings storylines, with the Comet. Looming above King's Landing, just as it did Dragonstone across the bay. The chapter starts, the morning of King Joffrey's name day dawned bright and windy, with the long tail of the great comet visible through the high scuttling clouds. So again, you have, you have the sense of, like, the great clockwork mechanisms of the universe. Like, the prologue, it's starting, you know, it's the start of autumn, and now it's, like, Joffrey's birthday. Like, you feel these are, like, kind of uh, big, momentous events that are just being locked into place by the comet. And just as Maester Cresson couldn't help but see the comet through the lens of the Red Woman, Sir Eris Oakhart very promptly links it to Joffrey's birthday. <laughs> see how it flames across the sky today on his grace's name day, as if the gods themselves had raised a banner in his honor. The small folk have named it King Joffrey's Comet. And that's just so different from how Cresson was looking at the comet, not just because they're in different environments talking about different things, but just their the mood and their approach is so different. Like, Cresson's fear that the comet was linked to Melisandre was genuine. It was irrational, but it was genuine. It was something he really felt it was this interior state. Whereas for Eris, the relationship to the comet is purely exterior. It's purely what he says and how that's received. He is not being genuine. He is spouting propaganda that, as a non-idiot, he probably <laughs> doesn't actually believe. Do you think that's fair to say that Eris knows that this is bullshit, what he's saying here? He's absolutely full of shit, and he's intentionally being full of shit because, you know... <laughs> What I mean, what what do we know about Kingsley? What do we know about the Red Keep? I mean, we know a bunch of things, but one of the things that we do know is that you know there are ears in the walls, as as Elena Terrell would put it out, and that you know when she says tell Sansa in her first Storm of Swords chapters, even when I was a young girl, younger than you, it was well known that the Red Keep, the very walls, have ears. So what she's referring to there is that Varys or his predecessors all had spies that were within the walls of King's Landing themselves that were all listening into the conversations that were going on in the Red in the Red Keep. So I mean. <laughs> Given the early stages of where we're at right now in Joffrey's reign of terror, I mean, there's no like Tyrion Lannister figure there who's able to restrain some of Joffrey's worst impulses. You know, I do wonder whether Eris Oakhart, Weakheart, whatever you want to call him, is he's attempting to avoid getting his ass killed by having one of Varys' spiders be there and listening in on what's going on and then reporting to Joffrey what's happening. Like, oh, Sir Eris Oakhart. And we do see this in Tyrion's second chapter in A Clash of Kings, how Varys has this grand list of like, oh, let me tell you, these are the following people that have committed treasons against Joffrey. What do you want to do with them? So I I think Eris Okar is very wisely in some sense attempting to prevent getting killed unnecessarily, but at the same time, like, God, he's such a spineless little turd. I mean, Eris Okar is, he's such a fucking spineless turd. I mean, I, I don't hate him the same way I hate a lot of the other figures in King's Landing, but I do find him to be nearly as culpable, if not all the way as culpable as he is, as, as they are, as the really, really bad ones are. Agreed there, and I'll expand on that in a little bit, yep. but I think everyone knows that George uses the comet as like this Rorschach blot to reflect back on the people trying to interpret it. I think that's obvious. That's a well-established part of the analysis of A Clash of Kings. But what I think is just as important to note is the many different kinds of interpretations. Not everyone is approaching the comet the same way. Some interpretations are personal, like with Cresson, and some are political, like with Eris. Some are genuine, like with Cresson, and some are not, like with Eris. And that reflects 
the different meanings of truth. Like there's rational truth, there's irrational truth, like the feeling Crescent has of Melisandre being connected to the comet, which I do think is true at some deep metaphysical level, even if there's not a, you know, causal A to B link you can point out. There's official truth, which is what Eris is presenting, and then there's the, you know, the unofficial truth. And we, we saw that with Viserys early on in Danny's story in book one, that he was being told, ah, yes, the small folk long for your return, and they're sewing dragon banners. And of course, that was a lie, but it's a very convenient lie. It can be spun into an official truth very, very easily by the people in power. Like The, the comet tears down Crescent's worldview because because his worldview is specific. It's something that stays still. It's a constant in his life. It was specifically built in opposition to things like giant scary red comets. Whereas the giant scary red comet just bolsters Eris's worldview because his worldview is whatever it has to be. Propaganda is flexible. It will absorb any stimuli you throw at it and Eris is able to just spit back out whatever he needs to say in the moment. That's why he not only claims the comet for Team Lannister due to its color, which fair enough, and it being the king's birthday, not unreasonable so far as analysis goes, but then he steps over the line to claim that Joffrey is the dragon's heir, <laughs> which is just ludicrous, given that he is ostensibly the son of Robert Baratheon who overthrew the dragons. I mean, typical of George's ironic uses of prophecy, there is a hidden truth in there. Joffrey is the dragon's heir in the sense that he's a royal product of incest, and so he's was conceived along similar lines as a lot of the Targaryens were. But of course, that's not what Eris is, is talking about. He's not confessing to that. So why does he say this at all, this transparently ridiculous thing? Because as Sansa notes, what the small folk are actually calling the comet is the dragon's tail. And Joffrey's rule right now is just too fragile to allow that shit to stand. <laughs> like, even Sansa, who is a prisoner of the Red Keep and does not have a lot of input going on right now, even she is noticing the cracks in this facade. And in the privacy of her own mind, she doubts that the comet was sent to honor Joffrey. I love that she doesn't quite have enough information to put the pieces together. She says the comet was red, but Joffrey was a Baratheon as much as a Lannister, and their sigil was a black stag on a golden field. Shouldn't the gods have sent Joff a golden comet? Well, the gods know, unlike Sansa, that Joffrey's not actually Baratheon. And it's hilarious that Eris has to implicitly admit that for his framing of the comet as the Lannister banner to work, as well as hijacking the Targaryen claim. I think that's why George is using Eris specifically as the mouthpiece in this scene, rather than one of the dumber or more soulless members of the Kingsguard like Boros Blount or Meryn Trant or Mandon Moore. Eris, unlike them, knows better than to believe this stuff. But he is above all driven by self-preservation, and so he keeps to the script, even as Santa tries to trip him up. Like, remember Assyrio Pharrell's story about how he was the only one to look at that cat in the Sea Lord's lap and say what it actually was? Eris is lying about the cat. That's what mm. he's doing here. He has to point at the fool's gold and call it the real deal. That's a great parallel. I didn't ever thought about that, about Assyrio Pharrell and looking at the cat and being like, yes, that is actually a cat and that's was it a male cat right it's supposed to be a female cat and stuff like right. that and, and like yeah. had its ear chewed off and like wasn't as pretty as everyone else was everyone else was just flattering it endlessly and that's, yeah. that's what Eris is doing here yeah and, and I think Eris works functions as an interesting subject in the story yes he will get one point of view chapter in A Feast for Crows which apparently George regrets now we can talk about that later on but at, at the same time I do think that he's and I, I will talk about this a little bit more but I do think he represents something about knighthood that is important in George's examination and interrogation of the military order of Westeros and the specific noble order of knighthood in Westeros but I do think that he is basically a mouthpiece for propaganda here because he doesn't want to get his ass killed but at the same time he's also just a good reachman just following the orders right I mean that's ultimately who he is in the story and yes he might have regrets about this later on as many former members of the uh, of the German military of the 1930s and 1940s claim to have regrets about following orders uh, under a bad and evil regime but ultimately he's the guy who's still following the orders he's still the guy who is willing to hit Sansa Stark 
even if he does it under protest, right? Yeah, Sir Eris Weakheart. He's he's interesting. He's he's not exactly a fan favorite character in part because that POV chapter I think is not necessarily some of George's uh, best writing, but I think he's used perfectly here. And yeah, I think what he represents here is the idea that the lesser evil is still evil from the perspective of the victim. You know, Eris is no Marin Trant. He doesn't enjoy causing pain. As he tells Joffrey, he would really rather not, please. But when it comes down to who will suffer, him or Sansa, he chooses Sansa. He'll do the right thing when it's convenient for him to do so, and falls short as soon as it isn't. And this is in direct contrast to the likes of Davos Seaworth, for example, or Brienne of Tarth, both introduced in this book, who do the right thing when it is not easy, nor rewarding because it's the right thing to do. And as you noted, it's really annoying that his name isn't spelled <laughs> like the Mad Kings, because it should be. But I think that reference is there for a reason. Eris, the knight would have watched men burn for, for Eris the king. He's one of those king's guard, and he's, he's the ultimate court flunky in that, w- in that way. And as, as you were hinting at earlier, I really hold him equally responsible as his more cruel comrades. Like, I'm not surprised by sadists coming out of the woodwork to gravitate to a sadistic child king. Like, that seems to me to be the natural consequence of the non-sadists leaving the sadistic child king in charge. <laughs> the apologists, the hand wavers, the silently assenting. This is in no way a political commentary at all. No. They... They overwhelmingly outnumber the Marin trance of the world, and yet they do nothing about Joffrey. Why? Because power resides where men believe it resides, and plenty of people, Eris Ocart included, derive their power from believing in Joffrey's. And so everyone silently agrees to overlook this. She wore a gown of pale purple silk and a moonstone hairnet that had been a gift from Joffrey. The gown had long sleeves to hide the bruises on her arms. Those were Joffrey's gifts as well. The pretty gown covers up the bruises, and Eris's easy smile and courteous words cover up the fact that he helped give them to her. I mean, not these specific bruises, these were from Boros Blount, but he's he's caught up in this process. And sure, from from his POV, it's it's a crucial difference that he's he's giving this protest. And Sansa tries to give him some credit for it, but that, that that's just a product of the situation she's in where everyone else is so much worse. I don't I don't take Sansa's words about Eris to be George like forgiving Erisokart for what he's doing here. I think he's just establishing how desperate Sansa's situation is, that this is the relative good guy in the room. So the thing about Eris, too, is, is that I, I think he functions as part of George's critique of knighthood. You can call it a threefold critique, since George loves his threes, you know. I, I think, like, when we have we have people like Gregor Clegane, Amory Lorch, Marin Trant, you know, people who, like Cormandon Bohr, who are just soulless, people who love violence and murder and killing, and those people are promoted within the military structure of, of and the nobility of Westeros for their, you know, propensity for violence. On the other hand, you have your people like your Barristan Selmys, who are like your typically your good guys. We talked about him at the very early on in the, in this episode itself, and how he was a good guy, right? He's a noble guy. He wanted to do the right thing all along, but yet when he came to the point where he had Eris the Second Targaryen doing terrible, horrible, murderous things or sexual assault things in the realm, he stood saw and did nothing. You know, Barrison didn't participate in Eris' cruelties as far as we know, but he just stood there and watched them and didn't do a fucking thing. And then you also have your Eris Okarts, which I think is another segment of George's critique of it. He's just the kind of the good bloke guy, right? He doesn't, he obeys the moral command, sure, but you know, it's not like he has much of a choice in the matter because he's a knight and he has to obey like those commands. He has to do those horrible fucking things. And when vows conflict, when like his vow to protect the innocent conflicts with his vow to obey the king, he's going to favor the king every single time. And yeah, he will kind of flinch away and be like, no, man, I can't do that. That's not right for me to do, to hit a girl. He's still going to hit Sansa Stark when Joffrey orders it, even under protest. And he's not going to flinch from political authority 
whether it be Erez, Tywin, or Joffrey. And I, and I mean Erez Okart, not just in terms of him specifically, but about the broader context of those types of knights and those types of military figures who are willing to obey a moral commands, even under protest, and still carry, and still carry out a moral deeds because a person in political authority tells them that they have to do that. And that's part of the critique that George has for these characters. Now, it would be a totally nihilistic critique if it was just a, these guys all suck, everything sucks. But George does provide us a counterbalance to those bad forms of knighthood and the forms is like you were talking about before, Brienne of Tarth and Davos Seaworth. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, they're at, they're at one end of a spectrum, the likes of Marin Trant and Gregor at the other end. And then somewhere in that, that gray little middle you got, you got Eris Card. And I think it's important to have him there because no one can relate to Gregor Clegane, right? right. If you can, that's trouble. But I, th- but I think... <laughs> Seek help! Exactly. But I think people can see themselves in Eris Card, And I think that's more insidious that someone who wouldn't think of themselves as the kind of person who would beat an innocent girl ends up being that person. I think you can, so much of a clash of kings is George exploring that, that tipping point, that crossing of the line. You see that with Stannis, you see that with Theon, you see that with a bunch of different characters in this book. And as Sansa will note after Joffrey has her beaten in open court, these Kingsguard knights taking part is in flagrant violation of their knighthood vows, which stress the importance of protecting the young, protecting the innocent, protecting women, and they have nothing to say about obeying the king. Just as John says about the Night's Watch vows when he's arguing with his uh, subordinates about it in Dance with Dragons, that we are here to guard the realms of men. Our vows don't say anything about clinging to every inch of land and holding on to all the castles and protecting the borders that Stannis say are the borders. That's not what we're here to do. And I think the same thing is true for the Kingsguard. Our, Our friend Stephen Atwell has argued that the Knight's vows come first because you take them first, so they should supersede any vows you take as a Kingsguard Knight specifically to obey the king. Which is something I think deep down Jamie agrees with, even though it's covered up with years of kind of horror and alienation and, and so forth. You know, people like Eris give Joffrey cover and legitimacy. Like Tywin noted back in, in Book One that Barristan lent honor to whomever he served. And along the same lines, Eris is culpable in normalizing the new Mad King. It's this struggle you see in real world politics when you have a, a leader that is doing terrible things and you have people making this choice of like, okay, if I go work for him, Maybe I can steer in a better direction. Maybe I can you know, limit the damage. Maybe I can convince them to go down a better path. But then the flip side of it is you just by being there, just your presence makes that leader seem more rational and responsible than they actually are. People can say, oh, how bad could Joffrey be? Eris Okart is in his Kingsguard. Eris Okart's not a monstrous man. He's, he's courteous and handsome, always has a smile. How bad could Joffrey possibly be? And this is especially true given that Joffrey is a child, and he can't do most of his own violence. He needs these knights to do it for him, and they do. I feel like at some level, Eris knows all of this. And he... You know, when we get to A Feast for Crows, and we get that one POV chapter, we, we get this interesting passage when Arianne brings up how horrible Joffrey is. Joffrey. He'd been a handsome lad, tall and strong for his age. But that was all the good that could be said of him. It's still a shame to Sir Eris to remember all the times he'd struck that poor Stark girl at the boy's command. When Tyrion had chosen him to go with Marcella to Dorne, he lit a candle to the warrior in thanks. And like, the, you know, the first read of that is he's lighting the candle in thanks because he doesn't have to hear the order to beat Sans anymore. He's that, that decision is kind of being taken out of his hands, so to speak, when he's being sent to Dorne. But on this reread, I was starting thinking maybe what he's really thanking the warrior for is a chance to redeem himself. Like if he can mm. protect Marcella and keep her safe, it'll make up for what he did to Sansa. And maybe that's part of why he freaks out so much when that plan falls apart and that's why he tries to go out in a blaze of glory on Marcella's behalf so he can like die a better man than he lived do you think that's uh, the thing that makes sense 
That's actually a great point. That's I think it's the first really convincing theory that I've seen why Arizokart Ren rushed against Ariohota aboard the ship. I think like I, I he's I mean, like like Barris and Selmy. I mean, I, I don't think that they're one and the same. I think that Arizokart is a much lesser knight than Barris and Selmy. At the same time, there are parallels between the two characters in that they do feel immense guilt over what they did in the form of Ares Elkhart, what they didn't do in the form of Barris and Selmy. So when we have Ares has the chance to go to Dorne to get to protect Marcella, he does look at it as, as his kind of own personal redemption arc, right? He, he's looking at protecting an innocent girl as a way that he can recover some of the honor that he lost as a result of serving in Joffrey's Kingsguard. You know, I, you, you are alluding to, you are being more implicit and more subtle about this, but I will be less subtle about this. There are certain members of the Trump administration who have kind of come out of the <laughs> Trump administration. Um, you're kind of mooches, so to speak. What was that was Anthony Scaramucci, right? Is that the, the Scaramucci, exactly. It, exactly. That's what I think every time. It's like, that sounds like, that sounds like an offensive slur or someone would come up to make fun of Italian names. But nope, that's his name. Scaramucci. Okay, I'll get shit for that, but that's okay. You know, <laughs> but like he, he's come out of the Trump administration now. He was only in there very briefly and he's like, oh, well now I'm super against this guy let me do all these things to kind of prevent myself from being associated and tagged with him and let me recover some of my honor that I formerly had before I went to the Trump administration and I, I don't well I mean I'm not gonna be a political prognosticator here on the not a cast podcast but I, I don't think that it will necessarily lend itself to good things for the mooch's favor in the long term the same way that I don't well ultimately that we do know that Sir Ares Okark's attempt to regain his honor leads to his beheading in the form of, um, you know, being the business end of, of Ariota's acts, which is interesting. It, it's interesting. I, I think it's a good reflection on the, him as a character. It is the tragedy of knighthood, if you want to put it that way, that these guys are all lending legitimacy to an evil king. At the same time, they're all trying to, like, flee as quickly as they possibly can. It's just like Boros Blunt as well, later on, tries to get the fuck out of Dodge and takes Tommen out to, was it Rosby, is, he, is it what I want to say? Mm-hmm. He tries to get out of the situation too, but they all can't. They all are brought back. Ultimately, Boros Blunt is bought, brought back to the service of, of Joffrey at the end of a Clash of Kings. Ares Okart, he ends up dying because he because of the shame that he feels over Sansa Stark. He needs to do the same thing for Marcella and try to protect a girl for once instead of beat her. That's a great point. I'd never thought of that. They can't escape it. Like the orbit just draws them back in. It's like the bloody mummers. Like they're, they're riding the wave of the war throughout Clash and Storm and then it catches up to them in Feast and just like annihilates them one by right. one. And you, you see that happening to the knights here. And yeah, I mean, obviously it doesn't just apply to Trump. It applies to any kind of politics. That's, that happens on the left too, where if you're... If your standard for yourself is being above the likes of Marin Trance, that's such a low bar that <laughs> you you end up being – if that's your guiding logic, you end up inevitably being only one notch above them is what I'm saying. If, if that's your guiding principle, it's got to be better than the worst, you inevitably become the second worst. I think that's I think that's what George is going for with Eris Oakguard. So mm-hmm. Sir Eris escorts Sansa along to the tournament. The tournament of gnats, as Sandor calls it in a wonderful turn of phrase. And it's like – Remember the first time we saw Joffrey on the Iron Throne in Edward 14 as he made that long walk down the hallway and it was like cinematic and genuinely intimidating. Like that's the one time Joffrey is like menacing and not just a danger. Like he had the crescent of Kingsguard knights all around him, the snarling hound, and just the sheer bulk of the throne itself. And now he can't get anyone to come to his birthday party. (laughs) It's great. It's so perfect. Like the only ones participating in the tourney are the Kingsguard because he can make them. The Red Wine Twins, because Cersei can make them, and the low-hanging hangers-on like Lothar Brune and Dantos Hollard, because how else can they climb the ladder by participating in whatever tourney, no matter how pathetic? As Eris says, this will be a small field, and poor. 
No more than two score will enter the lists, including squires and free riders. There is small honor in unhorsing green boys. And along the same lines, uh, the courtiers in the stands are the likes of Giles Rosby, and Tanda Stokeworth, and Jalabarzo, not exactly an impressive entourage for the ostensibly rightful king. And everything about this event is designed to undercut Joffrey's pretensions, along with Cersei's by implication, and establish how precarious Lannister rule really is at this moment. Like, Joffrey himself is just lounging in a chair like he hasn't a care in the world, and the most exciting match of the day is between Tommen and a literal straw man. It's similar to how Stannis is introduced with a, a tiny army at his back, or how the Greyjoys are introduced not having very many men, or Rob is introduced in this book with his largish army kind of scattered all over the place. Even as George plunges us into the dynamics of the Clashing Kings and gets a lot of drama out of that, he wants us to notice how they all think they're more important and impressive than they really are. Do you think that's fair? It's important that George establishes weaknesses for these characters, like I talked about before. But he also wants to kind of take the luster out of their their reigns, right? He wants to take the, the fact that Renly's army is he's he's a paper tiger. He looks enormous. He looks enormous. He looks he's he has an enormous. <laughs> that's right. That's his brother Robert. R- Renly has an enormous army surrounding himself. But as soon as Renly dies, poof, gone. The army is gone. They all either back Stannis or eventually Joffrey. When you look at at Joffrey Baratheon, you have him, all the glory of the Iron Throne, all of the massive red keep that's surrounding him, and 40 people are going to ride in this tournament, not all of Westeros, right? I mean, it's it's like pathetic. It's, intention, it's intentionally pathetic that Joffrey's, the people who are coming to celebrate Joffrey's birthday all kind of have to be there. They're like the people, they're like getting invitation to a two-year-old's birthday. Like, yeah, you have an obligation to show up for it, but you're nobody's having a good time, it's especially Joffrey. Joffrey's not having a good time at his own tournament. He complains the entire time. Yeah, there's that one line that I think like really speaks well to Joffrey's kind of like boredom at this and that his leg was thrown over negligently over the little throne that he's sitting on there. Nobody's having a good time here. And the reason why nobody's having a good time is, yes, Joffrey's a fucking psychopath, but also the entire realm is at war and Joffrey is playing at at games here. And and I and I love the little detail that that George puts in that Joffrey is donned in his armor as if he's expecting attack on the city at this very moment and like no one else is and you're like George is painting the picture here that Joffrey's the glittering person who sat the Iron Throne in Eddard 14, the guy who stood over Sansa Stark in Sansa's fifth chapter and promised mercy for her father. That that guy is pathetic, and his realm and his reign is pathetic, and that's important that it's pathetic because it establishes him kind of as an underdog, right? And kind of establishes him as an underdog, which does help to set some foundation for stuff that it's going to happen in the Battle of the Blackwater later in the book. Exactly, you got to have the Lannisters at their lowest point now, so it's shocking when they come into their glory, so to speak, at the Battle of the Blackwater, and their 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 reign goes undisputed, or at least less disputed, at least for a little while. Eventually, it does. Eventually, it falls apart again. But yeah, that's that's the arc for the Lannister regime over the course of a Clash of Kings, as we'll get into a lot in those early Tyrion chapters. They're in trouble now, and they're in charge at the end. And this this sense of like a kind of collapse and ruin, and the the image falling away for the Lannisters, all that ties perfectly into Sansa's character arc. Like, to come back to kind of the religious-ish metaphor I always use with these characters, like, for, for Sansa, the first book was this kind of state of divine grace, at least at first. And now this is the fall. Now this is her seeing things for what they really are. That kind of golden filigree of life being better than the songs that was over her eyes at the hands tourney, that's been ripped away. Not completely. It's still in there in bits and pieces. But she's seeing the world much differently. And she... she George uh, captures that perfectly 
by comparing the two storylines to each other in the forms of the tourneys. The last tourney had been different, Sansa reflected. King Robert had staged it in her father's honor. High lords and fabled champions had come from all over the realm to compete, and the whole city had turned out to watch. She remembered the splendor of it. The field of pavilions along the river with a night shield hung before each door. The long rows of silken pennants waving in the wind, the gleam of sunlight on bright steel and gilded spurs. The days had rung to the sounds of trumpets and pounding hooves, and the nights had been full of feasts and song. Those had been the most magical days of her life, but they seemed a memory from another age now. Robert Baratheon was dead, and her father as well, beheaded for a traitor on the steps of the great sept of Baelor. Now there were three kings in the land, soon to be four, soon to be five, <laughs> and, war, and war raged beyond the trident while the city filled with desperate men. Small wonder that they had to hold Joff's tournament behind the thick stone walls of the Red Keep. It's just such a perfect paragraph, because part of what George is doing there is just like the last season on Sansa Stark. <laughs> Gotta get you guys all caught up, like the beginning of an episode. It's just like, that's like, that's her Game of Thrones arc, perfectly captured in a paragraph. Those had been the most magical days of her life, but they seemed a memory from another age now. And I love that stinger at the end, that that's why they're holding Joff's tournament behind the walls of the Red Keep, because as soon as you step outside the Red Keep, it becomes obvious that the Lannister regime is collapsing. Only here, in this little bubble, can they keep that fiction alive, and even here, it's not working. So that paragraph links Sansa's downfall to that of the realm, as she has lost her innocence, the, quote, taste of summer that Robert spoke of has given way to autumn, and the realm of plenty and peace has given way to the realm at war. Splendor is a memory from another age now, and so Joffrey's court is withered and, as you said, pathetic. And that reflects how she now knows better than to trust him. The king settled back in his seat and took Sansa's hand. Once. Always once. That would have set her heart to pounding. But that was before he had answered her plea for mercy by presenting her with her father's head. His touch filled her with revulsion now, but she knew better than to show it. It's this <laughs> great thing George is doing with Sansa's chapters in this book, where all the imagery and chivalry and tropes that she used to love and used to think of as her future and like the building blocks of her life... They've now been kind of weaponized and turned on her, so they're now not the way she accesses good things. They're her only shield against terrible things. They're, they're not making her happy. They're just barely keeping her alive. Yeah, and by keeping her alive, they're acting as armor for Sansa Stark, which means that they can still she can still be hurt by the things that are occurring around her, as we've seen with her actual beatings and with Joffrey's shitty behavior to her throughout a clash of kings on into a storm of swords but they do keep her alive and that's ultimately what's important for Sansa Stark that she stays alive here you know it's it's there are a few characters in a song of ice and fire that are in a more precarious position than Sansa Stark arguably Theon maybe and well not arguably Theon in a dance of dragons for sure but Sansa here is in danger by any by a number of things that could happen to her she's in danger from Joffrey and his like psychopathy and the fact that he can have her killed at any point in time she's also endangered by not having any close allies no one at all here she's all alone in king's landing yes in sansa 2 she'll meet up with dantus hollard and she'll believe him to be her friend at some level ultimately he's not her friend but at the same time like she's literally like all alone here and she has to survive that like i i, I don't know how to emphasize that more than than that she has to survive as a 12 year old in or 11 or 12 year old in King's Landing all alone with enemies all around her and she does survive I mean I think that should be a testament to Sansa Stark as a character and to Sansa Stark and the ability that she's able to not reject the things that were that made her who she was early on but by recognizing the realistic reality the realistic reality that's a turn of phrase behind the things right the songs the stories the knights the kings the princes all the gallantry and the nobility and the chivalry that she so loved early on 
she's looking at it with a realistic lens and that realistic lens is allowing her to survive but it's not all bad news in king's landing though there are the fact that yes joffrey's a little shit but he's got two beautiful fallen tragically doomed angels at his side as well namely his siblings Yes, of course. Joffrey versus Tommen and Marcella is such a great contrast and one that speaks to the, the war going on in Sansa's head. Because, yeah, you're right. It's not she can't just completely flip over and become as cynical and as selfish as someone like Littlefinger. It's a dialectical process, right? There's the thesis of her original worldview and now the brutal antithesis. And she has to try to forge something new out of the combination that is not as naive as her original worldview, but not as cynical as the worldview she's being presented with. And you see that with the with the quote-unquote Baratheon kids, <laughs> that, you know, Joffrey is, is the worst possible version of all those ideals going sour, and Tom and Marcella are the ones who are still innocent. And they're, I think, it stood out on reread that they're clearly the analogs to their not-actually-cousin Shireen, that they're, they're the <laughs> rays of light in this dark place. Shireen is the one flickering ray of light on Dragonstone. Tom and Marcella are the flickering rays of light here in King's Landing. And, of course, yeah, they're just as doomed. Sigh. <laughs> I love that it's so it's so bittersweet that Tommen, like, he clearly doesn't realize that Sansa is now a hostage. Like, he's talking to her as if she's still just Joffrey's betrothed and nothing has happened. He doesn't even seem <laughs> to be aware of the shift because of how innocent he is. And uh, Sansa doesn't, like, I love that Sansa doesn't, you know, like, mock him internally for that to think, oh, you stupid little kid. She thinks wistfully of, like, how much he reminds her of Bran, both future kings, if the show is to be believed. (laughs) How much easier he would be as a fiancé, which comes back later when that's that's what kind of guides the Tyrell's logic in the Storm of Swords, that Tommen is much easier to control. And Tommen's, like, the only one genuinely enjoying the day. As you say, no one is having fun. Everyone is bored or uncomfortable or paranoid. Tommen is the only one having a nice time. And, uh, he, you know, he goes out to have his little joust and he falls. Marcella is concerned. She says, oh, and runs out to, to take care of him again, unlike Joffrey, who's just like sitting back mocking him, as he said. And Marcella gets this, this great gem of a line. We're children, Marcella declared haughtily. We're supposed to be childish, <laughs> which is great just as a solid burn on Joff, as Sandor points out. But it's so much more than that. Like, it's so bittersweet, like the right of children to be childish. It's one of the first things to go in war. And you can see George dwell on the sorrow of that all across the series. Arya, Sansa, Tommen, Marcella, Shireen, Lamy Greenhands. They're supposed to be childish, but they don't get to be. So Tommen and Marcella's oasis is so fragile, and both Sansa and Sandor know that. And yet they oddly approve. They like they they kinda love how innocent Tommen and Marcella are, and you can see them kind of struggle to the point of like they want to maintain that. Like uh, Sandor says about Tommen, the boy has courage. He's going to try again, which is like, you know, Sandor's not praising anybody else at this tourney, but he <laughs> zeroes on this little kid fighting a straw man as the one to praise. Or when, when Tommen gets knocked down and Sansa says to Joffrey, you should help him up and tell him how well he rode. Like, you should be an actual brother. You should give him some love. And it's uh, Joffrey, in contrast, it's not just that he's cynical. It's that he's this lethal mix of childishness and cynicism. He's like the worst of both worlds. He's more informed on and engaged with the bigger picture, the big picture than his siblings. Like, he knows that Sansa is a prisoner, obviously. He's heard about Viserys' death, which, you know, Tom and Marcella wouldn't even be told about. But he presides over this event with the air of a spoiled kid who got more presents last year. Like, he's that, he's that meme about Dudley Dursley from Harry Potter. 36 presents last year, I got 37! That's Joffrey in this chapter. And those two sides of his personality, they come together as the day goes on. Because, Joffrey the birthday boy is just pissed that no one came to his party. But Joffrey the king realizes that this is tantamount to disrespecting his crown. So he starts off playing the gallant, as Sansa says, but when his environment refuses to support that, well, that's when the claws come out. And, you know, this is, this is within a political context in which 
as Sansa says, the stag crown, which used to be the establishment, has suddenly come to signify the enemy. The Lannisters are surrounded and outnumbered, and that's what makes Joffrey even more dangerous than he would otherwise be. Like, a tantrum like this is so much more dangerous when it's backed by state power. Right, and that's a feature of Joffrey's story, if you want to call it that, in A Clash of Kings. You know, when Rob Stark beats the living piss out of the Lannisters in the Westerlands, he has Sansa Stark brought before the throne and has her beaten and stripped naked in front of all of the court. You talked about, and I think it's a great point, you talked about him having a lethal mix of childishness and childishness, childishness and cynicism. And, uh, like, there's a part of childishness that I think, like, people... Some people who don't have kids look at childishness and be like, oh, isn't that so cute? But there's also another side of being a kid, too, which I, I remember really well when I was six, seven, eight, nine years old, which is that kind of brutal, evil side as well. Like the bullying side, the, the side that kind of like looks at violence and kind of sees that as really, really cool. And maybe that's not evil necessarily, but I think that is a part of being a kid is looking at, you know, the violence in cartoons and being like, oh, that's that's neat, right? Watching people blow up and die and things like that. You know, I was the kid who used to like draw pictures of American soldiers parachuting into East Germany in order to liberate from the commies when I was like four or five years old. So that, that's, of course. that's kind of, of course, of course. So I mean, playing to type here. So I mean, like that, that's that's another part of, of being a kid. The problem is that Joffrey has power. He has an actual voice to utilize those violent fantasies and bring them to life. So we saw that at the end of a Game of Thrones where Joffrey is having people fight to the death always and having, you know, some woman who's coming to mourn her husband and wanting to take her stuff, his stuff away and, and being able to bury him. Oh, well, he, she must be a traitor too. Executor. You know, like that's that's really the part of the the danger and kind of the savagery of Joffrey Baratheon is not just that he's just this psychopath, right? I mean, I think it's so easy to dismiss him as a psychopath, but he's a psychopath and he's a child and he has power too to inflict the maximum amount of harm possible on people, whether they be innocents or, or not so innocents. Exactly. He's just playing with his toys, except his toys are people. <laughs> Right. That's the problem. If it was if he was just having these like horrible violent fantasies playing with toys, like that might still be something to watch, but that right. wouldn't be like the immediate horrible danger he's putting grown men and women and young people like Sansa in all the time. So again, that's that comes back to what I was saying earlier about the critique gets reflected back onto the adults, arguably even more than Joffrey that no one is stopping this horrible child and removing him from power. Uh, speaking of the adults, we covered a Eris Oakheart earlier, but this chapter also reestablishes two characters that will be very central to Sansa's story in A Clash of Kings, especially in relation to each other, although that part's not made clear yet. And those two are Dantos Hollard and Sandor Clegane. I love how George introduces Sandor in this chapter as looking, quote, somehow unnatural in his new white cloak, jarring as the contrast is with his burned face. Like, again, that duality. The white cloak is the image of the Lannister regime, and the burned face is the reality, especially because the man who burned that face, Gregor Clegane, is currently out there burning the Riverlands on Tywin's orders. Like, Sandor's face is, represents the bill coming due. But then again, he's the inverse of Eris in that despite being on the surface the embodiment of roughness, he arguably earns that cloak more than any of his brothers, and we start to see that here. He spares Sansa beating from Joffrey, which I think is far more admirable than Eris just objecting once and not hitting her quite as hard. And what's fascinating to me is you have that great line from Sandor later in the book about, you know, a hound will uh, die for you but never lie to you, which is a great line, but I don't think we should take it completely straight because he does blatantly <laughs> lie here. 
Like, Sansa thinks to herself, oh, is it true what I said about not killing people on your name day? Because Sandor backed it up. But no, Sandor doesn't believe that. He's stepping into Light of Joffrey purely to save Sansa Stark. Like, when Sansa describes his voice as being flat like he didn't care, that's a deliberate move on Sandor's part. Because he knows if he treats it like it's sarcastic or something small, then he can get Joffrey to go along with it. If he makes a big deal out of it, then Joffrey might uh, resist. So Sandor just buys into Sansa's transparently false cover story. It's a perfect example of what uh, Ned said about a lie being honorable if told for the right reasons. Sandor is putting the knightly virtues ahead of his cloak, even as George reminds us he hates knights. That's it's the, the, the great kind of romantic impulse on George's part that it's the people outside the system who ironically are the only ones that embody the values the system <laughs> is supposed to uphold. And it's also a great example about, about how the image Sansa used to believe in, it, it can't protect her on its own, the way she just assumed, like, I'm going to go through life like a nice young lady, and that means things will go well. But she can use it to protect herself. As you said, courtesy is a lady's armor, and she's beginning to learn how to use it effectively against the people around her. Like, she more than anyone else is stuck in this emperor's new clothes situation, where just no one is willing to call out Joffrey's transparent unfitness to rule. So instead, she has to craft her entire life around predicting his reactions. She has to play the part of Joffrey's lady love, because, again, he's not even content to be cynical. He still wants that glorious image, even as he does whatever he wants to everyone. And yet her true self still comes through, first uh, subtly mocking him about Rob, which I love, and then directly defying him regarding Danto. So the no just leaps out of her. She didn't even plan it. She didn't think it. She just does it. And, like, it's it's such a great optimistic moment, but also this great critique that none of these knights or lords are willing to tell Joffrey no. It's the young girl who has more to fear from him than anyone else. She's the one who insists on keeping the values of the songs and stories. And she's the one who notes that Joffrey's mood is getting worse because like all abuse victims, she has to learn to just train her brain to spot when the abuser is about to flip out. And it's, it's, Joffrey orders Dantos killed not just on a whim. I think it's the last straw. I think it's fair to say like if the day had been going well, and everyone had shown up, and there had been <laughs> glory. If it had been more like the hands turning, and the only thing going wrong was Dantos, I don't think. I think Joffrey might not have ordered him killed. I don't think he would have gotten into that bad mood. He was already kind of fuming and angry before Dantos showed up. Dantos, in his ridiculousness, just makes clear how pathetic this whole event, and by extension, Joffrey is. And so he decides he's going to re-cement his rule in fear by drowning Dantos in wine. And for Sansa, I think it's that. It's the lingering trauma of Ned's death, like you mentioned earlier, that's still with her. Like, she can't bear to see it happen again, this other horrible execution. She says that Joffrey has the same look on his face as that when he ordered Ned killed. And so she puts her life on the line instinctively for Dantos' sake. And that can't be emphasized enough. Like, Sansa has no guarantee that she's not going to get killed too or horribly beaten in this moment. It, it comes very close to happening. You know, Eris used the notion of Joffrey's birthday being really important as propaganda. Again, as a way to seem like a good Lannister loyalist. But Sansa, when she comes up with this cock and bull story about you shouldn't hurt someone on your name day, she's using that idea to save a life, which makes her just, I think, so much more impressive and admirable a human being than Eris Okard. And you can, you can see her good heart elsewhere, all across this chapter. The fact that she feels bad for Tommen and wants him taken care of. The fact that she wishes harm upon Moro Slint and then immediately takes it back when she sees it might actually happen to him, which is great because... You can certainly understand Sansa feeling that instinctive revulsion for the son of the man who helped behead her father. But on the other hand, of course, it's not Moro Slint's fault that his dad is horrible. Like, that's not up to him. We don't know anything about this kid. He might be perfectly sweet. So <laughs> Sansa understands, oh, okay, I shouldn't be that kind of person. I shouldn't do the Stannis thing where my anger at this one person becomes my all-consuming anger at everybody. Like, I gotta <laughs> hold myself back and be very specific about who my enemy is and who's causing the problems, which, of course, uh, comes up when Tyrion shows up. 
Yeah. And and I think one of the cool things about Sansa rejecting uh, her anger against Morris Lynn is like you can almost it's you can almost frame it as her rejection of vengeance. Right. The idea that Sansa had seen her father die and at the hands of Moros Lynn's father, Janos Lynn. But when she's wishing harm upon this kid, right, he probably teenager at, at the very least. And she sees him actually suffering violence. She's like, no, I, that's that's not what I actually want. So I think it's really good on Sansa's part. She's learning to progress beyond simply beyond beyond this sort of way that Arya is looking at life a little bit. And that Arya is very much consumed by this idea of vengeance and violence and revisiting those things on those who wronged her family. Sansa's looking at Boris Lynn is this figure of pity of, of a figure that she doesn't want to have violence ha- visit upon him. But I think like you bro- bring up a lot of great points about Sansa and Joffrey and Sansa and Joffrey's relationship, which I know we're definitely going to be exploring in many, many times going forward as well. But like you were, you were alluding, you were about to back, to get into Tyrion relationship, Uncle Tyrion, as you like to put it. Uh, I, I, I really think this relationship is one of the most delicate and one of the most controversial relationships too, especially when we get into his storm of swords and one in ways that I think the TV show intentionally tried to stay as far away as possible. But George kind of like teetered around the edges a little bit here. But I do think that early on though, Tyrion is presented in a sympathetic way to Sansa Stark in that he is not like the other. He's not like the Lan- all the other Lancers, right? Well said, sir. Even before I want to get into Tyrion, I want to reflect on something you said there about Arya being kind of more committed to revenge as Clash of Kings goes along. And I think one of the main reasons why is that Arya is always dealing with people who are a genuine threat. Like, there's really no Moro-Slint equivalent in her story, someone who is on technically the other side, but is just a child and very innocent. Like, is dealing with Amory Lorch and Gregor Clegane and the Bloody Mummers, men who are going out every day to cause harm to innocent, defenseless people and then laughing about it afterwards. And I really can't blame Arya for, for sending Jock and Hagar after them, even as I, of course, understand that I don't want Arya Stark to turn into a person who's just killing people all day long. Like, those, sure. pe- those guys, if anyone deserves it, those guys do. But Sansa is able to make that distinction and recognize that, no, Moros Lint actually does not. He's, he's not a part of this. I shouldn't paint him with the same brush as his father. And then, then you get Tyrion coming in. And, of course, yeah, Sansa has to, again, play with those distinctions about, okay, he's a, like with Eris Okard, okay, he's better than a lot of the people in his environment. But is that enough? Does it, does that, how does that weigh against the fact that Tyrion is still doing so much to support this system? You know, we, we've seen what a pathetic cock-up Joffrey's regime really is throughout this chapter. And then George frames it perfectly. That's when he ushers in Tyrion Lannister, the protagonist of A Clash of Kings. We've seen the mess, and now here's the person whose job it is to try and fix it. And yeah, that makes him better than Joffrey, but also all his, all his fix-its ultimately serve the purpose of keeping Joffrey on the throne. Like, that's the end game for everything Tyrion is doing in this book, keeping Joffrey on the throne. And that's, that you have to kind of weigh that against how he talks to Joffrey and aggravates Joffrey. Like, immediately, <laughs> the Red Keep's gates are opened for Tyrion without Joffrey's knowledge or consent. Even before Tyrion says anything, he's already pissing Joffrey off. And then they come in, and neither he nor his men fit the golden, shining Lannister image that Joffrey and Cersei are trying to maintain. The visitors were dinted and haggard and dusty, yet the standard they carried was the Lion of Lannister. Golden on its crimson field. A few wore the red cloaks and mail of Lannister men-at-arms, but more were free riders and sellswords, armored in oddments and bristling with sharp steel. And there were others, monstrous savages out of old Nan's tales, the scary ones Bran used to love. They were clad in shabby skins and boiled leather, with long hair and fierce beards. 
Some wore bloodstained bandages over their brows or wrapped around their hands, and others were missing eyes, ears, and fingers, which is not from the war. That's from the the, the burned men or ritual of manhood, as we've learned about. But Santa doesn't know that. This just seems like a list of, of horrible violence kind of reflecting on the war. In their midst, riding on a tall red horse in a strange high saddle that cradled him back in front, was the queen's dwarf brother Tyrion Lannister, the one they called the Imp. He let his beard grow to cover his pushed-in face until it was a bristly tangle of yellow and black hair, <laughs> coarse as wire. Down his back flowed a shadow-skin cloak, black fur striped with white. He held the reins in his left hand and carried his right arm in a white silk sling, but otherwise looked as grotesque as Sansa remembered from when he had visited Winterfell. With his bulging brow and mismatched eyes, he was still the ugliest man she had ever chanced to look upon. But then again, Joffrey is still one of the prettiest men she's ever chanced to look upon, and look at how Joffrey behaves. You see that contrast. Like, these these men might look ugly and scary, and like they're out of the horrible tales that Bran used to love, but ultimately they're here to do far more good for the Lannister cause than Cersei or Joffrey or any of their cronies. And in that regard, you can... You can see Tyrion and his men as a parallel to Sandor, like they're they're doing a better job of embodying the values of this place than the the people who are in charge. And uh, once again, George is using Tommen and Marcella to cue our sympathies. And yeah, this this is really sweet. And I think this this might be Tyrion's most sympathetic moment is Tommen and Marcella <laughs> running out to Tyrion, and like you know, uh, Shaga like grabs Tommen out of his saddle saddle and drops him in front of Tyrion, and they're hugging, and he's picking up Marcella and spinning her around. It's, it's, it's like they missed him. They love him. Mm-hmm. They love Tyrion. They're so glad he's back, and he loves them, and he's so glad to see them again. And it's like, man, within the context of House Lannister, that genuine, uncomplicated emotion is just so rare. And it's like when Marcella says, I'm glad you're not dead. This is just, you know, again, wonderfully innocent and naive. It speaks to a, a real, the love that Tyrion thinks he's always been denied. Like, it is here. You do see it just for a second. Of course, it's going to break down hard over the rest of the series to date. But I love you get this, this 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 flash of it, and so much of so much of, of Tyrion's story is like these these near misses and these missed opportunities where he could have broken through and made something great and lasting, but it doesn't quite happen because of the people he's associating with and the regime he's working for. At the end of the day, like uh, Tyrion and Sandor, for example, like on the surface you think they could be natural allies, right? Like they've both been outcasts from society. They both have these kind of more cynical views on things. Neither of them really likes the regime they're working. You can see Tyrion and Sandor being drinking buddies in an alternate universe, but they loathe each other in this one because at the end of the day, they just come at Joffrey's power from different angles. Like Joffrey, in his weird little way, kind of looks up to Sandor. Like that's why he gives in on the Dantos question. He wants Sandor to like him and think he's cool because Joffrey is just this weird daddy issues that we can talk more about as we go. But, <laughs> but Joffrey despises Tyrion. And so that, that immediately sets Sandor and Tyrion against each other. And just every line back and forth between Tyrion and Joffrey is just so barbed and hostile. Like, you can already see where this is going long before the King's Landing riot, long before the assassination attempt at the Battle of the Blackwater, that this, this relationship, which right now really is the heart of Lannister power between the King and the Hand, is just diseased. Like, Joffrey's just openly affronted that Tyrion is even here, saying just you when he shows up. And Tyrion can't help himself from dropping lines like, oh, all sorts of people are calling themselves king these days. <laughs> Which is funny, but dude, it's so self-defeating. Because like I, I said, know, I know. you're ultimately there to keep Joffrey on the throne. So all you're doing by saying lines like that is making Joffrey hate you. Like, that's that's the only outcome from Tyrion talking like this. And as you say, in contrast, he, he's approaching Sansa with sympathy and understanding, talking about what she lost. When she admits to him that she's, like, you know, surrounded by lions, he doesn't say, oh, ha, I'm going to tell Cersei what you said. You know, he's, he mm-hmm. agrees to, to, to keep her secret, so to speak. But as she notes, 
He speaks more gently than Joffrey, but the queen spoke to me gently too. He's still a Lannister, her brother and Joff's uncle, and no friend. Once she had loved Prince Joffrey with all her heart and admired and trusted his mother, the queen. They had repaid that love and trust with her father's head. Sansa would never make that mistake again. So as with Eris Hokart, you know, being a good man in service to a bad cause, the way Varys describes Kevon, just at the end of the day is not enough. At the end of the day, from the perspective of someone who's being crushed under the wheels of that bad cause, it, it doesn't matter if you're, you're the best man on that horrible machine. And that political reality kind of cutting across the personal dynamics also applies to Tyrion's relationship to Joffrey. No matter how little Tyrion likes his nephew, no matter how much he understands that Joffrey isn't fit to be king, Tyrion's whole job is to keep Joffrey's butt on the throne. And that is ultimately more significant than slapping him once or twice. And that undercuts Tyrion's ability to present himself as a different kind of Lannister. Does it matter that he's a different kind of Lannister if he's still keeping the worst kinds of Lannisters in charge? It's a difficult question, but I think George is... is cueing us into that debate with Sansa's POV, where she's kind of telling the reader, hey, you might like Tyrion more than the rest of his family. You might find him sympathetic in this scene with Tommen and Marcella, but never forget who he's working for. Never forget that he's Joffrey's man. That's brilliantly said, man. I think that's that's some, that's great great work on, on, on establishing the dynamic between Tyrion and Joffrey, because I, I, they haven't seen each other since Tyrion's first chapter, right? That's when he heads out and up with north with Jon, and then after that words, he gets waylaid for the rest of the Game of Thrones. And so this is their first interaction since, essentially, Tyrion slapped the shit out of Joffrey in Winterfell, right? So you understand that the dynamic is already fraught with um, a fair amount of negativity. Let's go with that. And that's going to have a really big impact. Now, it's interesting, right? So we were talking about, in the prologue chapters, about how Stannis's best actions are seen only by people like Davos Seaworth, right? Or Melisandre or Jon Snow. In contrast, Tyrion's, I don't I don't want to call them worst actions, but his most public actions are the ones where the king in the form of Joffrey Baratheon, who again is not a good kid, he's very much a psychopath, but it's very a very public denunciation of him, right? You know, like we're talking about in this chapter about how Joffrey comes in and says there are all sorts of people calling themselves kings these days very publicly, right, in front of all the people around him. So it's really not smart optics, and it also is really going to set Joffrey against Tyrion throughout this this chapter, right, and then throughout the arc, really, in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords. And that's a good contrast between Stannis and Tyrion, but it's also one that also lends itself to a festering, really negative relationship establishing between these two characters. Well, it's going to endure even beyond Joffrey's death. Like when you get to Tyrion's trial, something I love is that all of this comes back. All of this right. comes back to bite him in the ass. And yeah, a lot of people, a lot of Cersei's witnesses like Pycelle are just lying through their teeth. But a lot of them aren't because they, they don't have to. All they have to do is just accurately report how Tyrion talked to Joffrey, you know, conveniently remove all the context. And Tyrion looks guilty as sin. And a part of that is because... He never threaded this needle. He never figured out how to be the hand to a king he despised. He never made that, like, work, politically speaking. And again, there are these, you can see these opportunities for him to do so that he rejects. And at the end of the day, while uh, Tyrion certainly gets brought down by the fact that everyone hates him and never gives him a chance and lies about him, he is also brought down by his own actions. And I think that's important, and I think it's interesting you see that established here, not even in his chapter, but you see it established in specifically Sansa's perspective on him, that she's looking at him thinking... I see you're coming to power. I see, I see you're thinking of yourself well as a lion different from his pride, but I know better. And I think that's I think that's what George is using Sansa to cue us into that. And that's important that he's using that kind of outside vantage point because 
it could be, it would be so easy for us to simply just take Tyrion's side through a clash throughout a clash of kings because he has I think he has the most number of chapters in clash I think he's got 13 chapters if I'm, if I'm not mistaken maybe 12 and so we could be like oh well Tyrion's just like unambiguously the hero of the story I, I think you're right to call him the protagonist of a clash of kings but he's definitely not the hero of a clash of kings for sure and the fact that we have Sansa Stark there providing that ambiguity to Tyrion's presence in, in King's Landing is so important in ensuring that Tyrion is presented in a realistic lens. And, you know, something else, too. And, and this I'm totally going to switch tracks on this thing. In talking about Tyrion as not a hero, something you were talking about, like, kind of triggered something in my mind. When you were talking about Tyrion's relationship to Tommen and Marcella and how this is, like, his best moment in the story, right? It reminded me of Tyrion's first chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where he's sitting there, like, totally broken at that point in time, after the trial in King's Landing. And one of the plans he thinks about hatching is in crowning Marcella in order to set her on a civil war with Tommen. And you just kind of, like, I'm pulling out the little hair that I have left in my head right now and being like, you see how far this guy has fallen from the guy who his, his nephew and his niece love him and he loves them, seemingly, in this chapter, to the point in A Dance with Dragons where... He's thinking about having them kill each other like that's that's it's really showing Tyrion's break in the story. And I know we're going fast forwarding four to five years for, from now from where we are in the story, but showing Tyrion's break in the story. Ultimately, it's also showing his, his fall. And that's the tragedy of Tyrion Lannister in that all of the shit that he takes in King's Landing, all the things that end up leading to his downfall in King's Landing itself lead him to rejecting the few things that are actually genuinely authentically good about himself. And I think it's sad. It's really sad, but it's also it's a, it's a good story arc for Tyrion. But again. It's sad. It's tragedy. Damn, dude. That, yeah, that was perfect. That yeah, Tyrion is not just rejecting the family that hated him. He's also rejecting the family that loved him. That's right. really what makes it so powerful and such such a downfall. So I think that just about wraps us up for the body of a Clash of Kings, Sansa One. We can move on now into foreshadowing and groundwork for the chapter, which is not much, not as loaded with foreshadowing as something like the prologue, but there are still a couple of nuggets worth mentioning. Oh, yes, which is her father had died by the king's command. That is Ned Stark. Must Rob and her lady mother die next? Oh, Sansa, Sansa, Sansa. Why would you say that? Is she a prophet in the story? Is, is that what's going on here? Is, 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 Sansa Star, is, is Sansa Stark the Melisandre of House Stark is what I'm, is what I'm asking ultimately? She's taken over for Bran as the, the prophet green seer in the family. Yeah, that's, that's among the more blatant setups for the Red Wedding. It you know, doesn't get into any of the plot dynamics surrounding the Red Wedding. That's something we're going to be keeping an eye on a lot when we get to later Clash of Kings and early on in the Storm of Swords is where George is setting the specific mechanics in place. But this is, this, this is just a hint from George, putting it, hiding it in plain sight, so to speak that Rob and Catelyn are next on the chopping block. Another uh, interesting bit, not of foreshadowing, but just groundwork, is uh, Lothar Brune, who takes part in, uh, who was supposed to take part in the tilt against Dantos Hollard before Dantos turned out so drunk. And Lothar was mentioned in passing at the hands tourney in A Game of Thrones as just someone participating. But this is the first time that we hear he works for Littlefinger, which becomes very important later when Sansa flees King's Landing and goes to the Vale because Lothar was along for every step of the way there. And there's a great irony in coming back on reread and realizing that Lothar v. Dantos as a tilt is just Littlefinger crony versus Littlefinger crony. <laughs> so, like, either way, he would wins, so to speak. And like I think that perfectly encapsulates how he handles himself in the war, that he sets these multiple sides against each other and, and tries to make it so that whoever wins, he comes out on top. Right. And I think there's also something interesting, too, is when we're looking at Lothar Broom, a very minor character in the story, in that when you're looking at what happened to 
to the Vale houses that were associated with John Aaron after his death, most of them got the fuck out of Dodge. They all went back to the Vale with Lysa Aaron. So you have to wonder why Lothar Brune stayed, right? And here we get the revelation that Lothar Brune is actually in service of Lord Littlefinger. So the question then becomes like, why is Littlefinger keeping this guy around? And the reason, as we find out in Storm of Swords, is that he's going to be a part of Sansa Stark's escape from King's Landing, although I'm not entirely sure whether that was Littlefinger's plan here. Maybe at some level it was. But I, I do think it's interesting that we have Lothar Broom coming up again here, being mentioned as specifically part of Littlefinger's entourage, and then having that play out and and, and a pretty cool revelation in Storm of Swords. That's a great point. I don't know if, Loth- if Littlefinger had that in mind for Lothar now. I get the sense that most of Littlefinger's cronies are just kind of incompetent. People like Dantos <laughs> Hollard and the Kettleblacks, like he deploys them to fail in a way. To, to He uses them to kind of break apart other people's plans. So maybe he just keeps Lothar around because he thinks, well, I got to have one useful guy. I, mean, <laughs> I, I might need him in a pinch. I should keep someone who knows what they're doing. Because Lo- Lothar Brune to me is like the exemplar of competence. Whenever we see him, he's always doing whatever he does right. He's always, right. He's, he's always doing his job. And uh, we'll talk about this as we go, but I, I see some potential hints that he might switch loyalties to Sansa Stark as the, as the, <laughs> as the series plays out away from Littlefinger. But that's that's for uh, for Storm and Feast and such. So that uh, wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork, moving into our theory discussion section. And again, there's not like a, a big, you know, hidden revelation of a secret theory that appears in this chapter. It's pretty straightforward. But something I think is worthy of discussion uh, setting up early on in this book are the, the contrasts and parallels between Sansa and Arya Stark. That's something we got a little bit of in book one. You have that great quote from Ned, Sansa is your sister. You may be as different as the sun and the moon, but the same blood flows through both your hearts. You need her as she needs you. And the implication there is really George is the one who needs them both because he does such great work with uh, contrasting and parallel them. It's like, it's ironic. Like only once the Stark sisters are separated and have lost their father, only once they're left alone at the helm of their respective storylines, only now does George really dig into this dynamic. Because in book one, Sansa and Arya really were supporting characters in Ned's story more than anything else. Now that they're kind of protagonists in their own right, I think you can see George really working to set them up a, a against each other not in the sense of fighting each other but against each other as characters and the way they bounce off each other because this is this is crucial to both their stories going forward yeah it's it's good that we have them as contrasting characters now i think they're eventually going to they're paralleling each other in a lot of ways they're also contrasting each other and eventually they're going to meet up in maybe a dream of spring or the windsmers we talked about early on there's there's a couple key contrasts i think that are important in establishing their dynamic in a clash of kings and their kind of parallel slash contrasting dynamic and that one you have the environment so we have Arya stark always on the road always heading north towards the fire and the flames we carry on if, if to quote uh the dragon force song and uh that's 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 important for her story and then we have Though Sansa Stark, though, as a prisoner in the Red Keep in, in, in A Clash of Kings. Now, that's that's the contrast. There is a parallel in that, as I talked about before earlier, we have Arya Stark coming in as a prisoner at Harrenhal for a time before she ends up escaping at the end of A Clash of Kings. Then we have the supporting cast. Arya Stark, as we talked about last week, she has characters like Lamy Greenhands. She's got Hot Pie. She's got Gendry, who is technically a peasant, although he's actually a royal bastard, of course. And she's got Yorm, who's also a peasant figure there. Sansa's characters, her supporting cast, are all nobles, right? She doesn't encounter really much of anyone outside of the classes that are within King's, within the Red Keep in King's Landing. So we have Arya again, wandering all over the place, fighting out all sorts of interesting things, hunting in the woods, eating with her friends, establishing relationships with those friends through their wandering, all of them establishing their scared fear over what's to come in Arya 4, which is going to be in about two months, I want to say. 
versus Sansa, who is a who is the princess in the tower, so to speak. She is the one who is held captive, stuck in the castle of the Red Keep, and she will be there for the next two books. She's not getting out anytime soon. And then finally, we got day-to-day activity. Again, where, where Arya is having to do lots and lots of stuff. She doesn't have the ability to... She almost is kind of overwhelmed with the amount of things she has to do on the road north, right? She has to hunt. She has to set fires. She has to set watches. She has to... Even the ability... Even her going to the bathroom is fraught with danger. Like, she has so much going on her plate. Sansa, on the other hand, like I said before, she's a hostage, so she can't really do anything. She attends Joffrey and tourneys. She watches Joffrey in court. She is brought before Joffrey and beaten. She is a almost not, I don't want to say she's passive in terms of her personality, but passive in terms of the physical actions that she can take in the story in A Clash of Kings. So those are, are some of the contrasts, but there are parallels too. Yeah, you can see in those contrasts, like George setting up Arya and Sansa, these, these the opposite, not only in terms of characters, but just the kinds of stories. Like I think about Arya's early chapters in Clash, and I just think about like a just like a wild overgrown wheat field and like a skinny dirt road making its way through it. And then I think about Sansa's chapters is like she's stuck in this little glass box. And if she like moves an inch, she's going to get beaten. And that's the situation she's in. So perfect opposites in that regard. But as you dig into these chapters, you also find a lot of parallels. The both of them are dealing with omnipresent threats. They're always in danger. Danger in different ways and from different sources, but they're always constantly living with this fallen from innocence feeling of the world is not going to support me. The world is out to get me. There's, there's always a danger around the next corner. Both of them have these these ambiguous mentor-slash-savior figures. Sansa, of course, has both Sandor and Dantos, as I mentioned earlier. We'll get much more into that in her next chapter. Arya has Jock and Hagar. Now, you could argue that Jock and Hagar is a much more effective or impressive figure than someone like Dantos Hollard, uh, but, but I think that both of those apply to the respective characters. Both Sansa and Arya have this instinctive heroism that emerges under pressure. Sansa, as we say in this chapter, saves Dantos' life at great risk to herself. At the Battle of the God's Eyes, in the next Arya chapter, she saves uh, Jokin and Rorge and Biter at great risk to herself when they're, they're in danger of being consumed by the flames. You can argue whether that was ultimately a beneficial thing, given what Rorge and Biter go on to do, but in the moment, it's, it's Arya being really heroic heroic and self-sacrificing. And then, of course, the, the ultimate parallel, the one that will bring them really together once they meet again, is the desire for home and family. That what, however else they didn't get along when they were kids, they both want to go home now. They both want to be back at Winterfell now. And both of them, I think, have come to understand or will come to understand that the differences between them are so much smaller than the differences between both of them and Littlefinger or both of them and Joffrey, both of them and Cersei, that they are united as one against these outside pressures and united as one in their desire to get home. So you have Arya and Sansa's story are just are deepened by the presence of the other. They're, they're, they're better stories when you consider them together. I think that's why George starts A Clash of Kings after the prologue with Arya one and then Sansa one. You get, you get the full meaning from putting them together and realizing that Ned was right in that quote I, I mentioned earlier. The Stark sisters are binary stars and they're constantly moving together even as they're separate. And I think it's fascinating to see George set that foundation in this book specifically because Clash is all about the sibling dynamics, right? You got Stannis versus Renly. You got Tyrion versus Cersei. You got Theon versus Asha that we're going to get to later in the book. And uh, Sansa and Arya, unlike those, siblings aren't directly interacting. Even if the characters aren't in dialogue with each other, it feels like the stories are in dialogue with each other, that mm. they're going, they're looking back and forth. And yeah, that's only going to ramp up when we get to their apprenticeships in A Feast for Crows, because that's, I think, when George really starts ramping up the parallels between Arya and Sansa. But we wanted to just establish it here, because we're going to be, you know, mentioning it kind of more in passing than anything else going through A Clash of Kings. But I think it is really like dramatically central to both of these characters this this dynamic and we wanted to establish it here at the beginning it's it, it, like you said it's, it's important to establish it because 
George ultimately intends for them to be reunited. So establishing them as both parallels and contrast to each other in in Clash, Storm, and in A Feast for Crows, it works to set their dynamic really strongly together when they're going to get back together in, in Winterfell, most likely in The Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. And I think, like, you, you talked about the sibling relationships, and that's, that's really, really good. And I think, like, extending beyond Sansa and Arya, I think the Starks ultimately have the best sibling relationships, and I think that's due primarily to the fact that they had okay parent figures, right? They had Ned and Catelyn. They didn't have Bale and Greyjoy. They didn't have Tywin Lannister. Uh, Stefan Baratheon, we don't really know much about him, but they didn't have like an absent father figure in the form of Stefan in the form, and because Robert was away for most of his life uh, with John Aaron. So it's important to be a good parent so that your children don't end up going to war with each other. I think it's ultimately the story of A Song of Ice and Fire, right? I think we can ultimately come across with that that message ultimately. That's the messaging we're going to go with. Agree that at the, at the end, at the end of the road, Arya and Sansa are not going to do what Stannis and Renly did. They're not going to do what Tyrion and Cersei did. They're not going to do what Theon and Asha did or, or their, uh, the older generation of Greyjoys. They're not going to just turn on each other and consume each other at the cost of the family. They're going to realize that Ned was right and that you got to come together as, as the pack to survive. I think I didn't exactly like the plot mechanics in season seven that kind of brought about that connection. I, you know, as many people have pointed out, it's, it seems that they were being made to be dumber than they actually are in order to get to the, you know, the big reveal of killing Littlefinger at the end of season seven. But the outcome where they, they recognize their mutual strengths and it's like, you know, I couldn't have survived what you did and no, you could have, you're strong. But as Santa says, you're still weird and annoying though. <laughs> Which is a great line, not only because Sophie Turner delivers it wonderfully, but because Maisie smiles. Because she takes it not as an insult, which she probably would have, you know, when they were this age. She recognizes that the the difference is part of what brings them together. That they they, they are the, the perfect mixture of same and different. And that's what allows them to come together. Again, the opposite of Stannis and Renly, where Tyrion says they're too different yet too much alike. And that's why they hate each other. I think Sansa and Arya at the end are going to be different and alike. And that's why they love each other. I think that is an excellent point. And that's an excellent way to conclude this episode on A Clash of Kings Sansa 1. So thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. We really appreciate all your guys' ears. We appreciate all the positive feedback we've gotten for our first few episodes for A Clash of Kings. We're excited to be talking about the rest of this book. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. That would be excellent if you could do that for us. As we said earlier, check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. We've got a bunch of new benefits and tiers that we've uh, come up with recently that we're really excited about. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. So... Join us next week as we stay in King's Landing, but with a different point of view. There's a new sheriff, hand, sheriff, sheriff hand, whatever it is, in town. It's time for Tyrion 1. And, in addition, because you guys have been so generous on your Patreon, you've gotten us up, up to our, our stretch goal of $5,000 a month. We are doing monthly live casts, and guess what the next monthly live cast is on? Is it Tyrion 1? Yes. Was was that obvious? Was that uh, was that too obvious? <laughs> I caught on eventually, Jeff. If it's if it's obvious enough for me, it's just right. <laughs> but yeah, when I, we were talking about the prologue to a Clash of Kings, I compared Clash to Godfather Two, and uh, just in general about being like a great sequel that I think is better than the already impressive original. But I think that comparison really holds when you get to Tyrion's chapters, because as I'll be talking about, as much as this is obviously rooted in medieval fantasy and historical fiction, Tyrion's chapters in this book feel 
like a gangster movie to me. They feel like an organized crime story, like uh, The Godfather or Goodfellas. That's just the energy. That's how Tyrion carries himself, and, and Martin executes it brilliantly. So we're just we're going to be gushing over those chapters a ton. And uh, we thought, you know, we should the first time we do it, you should see our, our smiling, beautiful faces as we do it. <laughs> I, oh, I got to smile this time, right? I got to. I'll remember that this time to smile. Because I got lots of critiques about not. No, I didn't. I don't think anyone said anything. That's okay. You're a so, man. No one tells you to smile, Jeff. I don't smile because it's against my religion, and I don't know what I'm even saying now. It's fucking late. <laughs> <laughs> it's against your civic religion. Yes. Absolutely. There we go. There we go. Ah, you got the beautiful words. You got the burst words. So, thank you for listening. Hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. We will see you guys, and you'll see us next week. 